we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. We want them talking trash to Goliath. We want them building a boat and collecting animals. Everybody thinks they're crazy, and they are. I'm your huckleberry. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Behold, a pale horse. The man who sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. Can you read, my son? Well, that depends. Can you go fight in the shade? Repent or perish. You know your places. God be with you all. All for all and one for one, then, I guess. Stone Mountain Media. Ale to the King. Welcome back to another episode of Stone Mountain Media. This is Dave. I'm here with the Sugar Sean in the Moscow, Idaho for Grace Agenda 2020 COVID edition. We're joined today by Big Steve and the poor man celebrity, Keith Darrell. Say hey, Keith. What's up, everybody? Keith Darrell, campuspreacher.com. That's how you that's how I get my plug in. You guys aren't going to let me plug it, so that's me get my plug in. Oh, uh, we're going to let you plug. I'm talking about plugs, you have your own podcast. Sometimes you upload for your podcast. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell people what your podcast is and what you hope to build with it? Yeah, so it's uh, if you punch into like your search engine KDCP, it's on the Cross poly- or Fight Left Feast Network, and so it's KDCP. And what the goal? So I, I do open air preach on college campuses, and the goal is when campuses are open to record some of my conversations on campus and explain basically evangelism and apologetics, why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I'm saying what I'm saying. So the ideal situation, which I haven't been able to do obviously for the last five months, is to record something on campus, take out some of that dialogue and kind of introduce the podcast on, you know, here's evangelism, here's a context somebody interacting with, and then kind of break down my conversation a little bit and explain to people. So right now it's a little more broad. I'm going to I'm going to spend this week I'm going to talk about Genesis 3:15, the Proto-Evangelion, why that is a prophecy about the coming Messiah and how as Christians we should read that text in light of John 5, Jesus says if you believe Moses, you believe me. So what is Moses driving at and what I want to argue is that the Pentateuch is inherently messianic, so evangelistic. So anyway, all things evangelism is kind of what I'm trying to get at and apologetic oriented. So you're saying the Old Testament is about Jesus? Uh, yep, from Genesis 1-1 to Malachi, the Italian prophet, it's all about Jesus. And uh, so if you're reading it and you don't see Jesus in it, and uh, now there's a proper way to do that. So for example, um, uh, right now I'm in a study of Daniel with some men, and basically, long story short, Jesus is the greater Daniel. So it's not strictly a one-to-one, but if you and I were to sit down and you were to study the book of Daniel, Daniel goes through some deaths and resurrections just as Jesus was, and once he's resurrected, he's restored to glory and honor and power and to a place of privilege, and uh, that's what happened with Jesus. He was uh, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, Send it to the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus is the greater Daniel. So it's it's not in the strict prophetic way that we often read, want to read the Bible. See, here's a proof text for the Messiah. But the whole Old Testament from Adam, Jesus is the second Adam, from Adam to Abraham, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, Daniel, all these people, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's identified like 91 times as the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. So, so it, it, it's reading the Bible in a way that is fundamentally prophetic and fundamentally Christological. Um, and what I want to argue is that it's inherent. So it's not something we're reading back into the text as New Testament Christians, but it's something that a Jew reading the book 
originally would have been looking forward to this coming Messiah. And so that's what I want to argue. It's not something that we impose back onto the text that some dispensationalists like a John MacArthur would say we're doing. No, we're, we're reading the text as Moses would have been understanding it, that the whole goal of the Pentateuch would have been driving us to justification by faith alone in the coming Messiah, the Proto-Euangelion. So that's what I'd want to argue is going on. Which, I mean, just to chime in on that real quick, makes a lot of sense in terms of even just Jesus' rebukes of the Jews. Mm-hmm. Those don't make as much sense if, if the expectation wasn't this coming Messiah. Mm-hmm. Their failure to recognize him really points to the nature of the Old Testament and how it pointed to Christ. Yeah, and they, they made it a, a nationalistic Torah Torah in, this, in a law sense, not Torah in the instructional sense, right. and they made it a law-oriented thing, getting away from the, the purpose. Even the law was given in the context of, of obviously redemption, but also rebellion. As Paul says, the law was added, uh, that sin may increase, and or as transgression increased, the law was added right. uh, in Galatians. So there's there's even that element of understanding it. So anyway, I, what I want to argue is that the, you know, the Old Testament is fundamentally Christian, not because we impose it on there, but because Jesus is the end of the law, the telos, or goal of the law. So Now, you do street preaching on college campuses for your job. Mm-hmm. So that's a job. That's uh, Yeah, well, some people uh, tell me, go get a real job, loser. So, so in, some, <laughs> in some people's minds, it's not a real job. Uh, I consider it a job. It's not real lucrative. I got to figure out a way. I want to get it Benny Hinn style. So if you're out there and you got a bunch of cash, you want to help a brother out, I'm not opposed to uh, getting me going Benny Hinn style. How, how would they get you going Benny Hinn style practically? <laughs> Where would they send that money? Uh, if you go to campuspreacher.com, there's a little donation page that is, uh, so it goes to an organization called the Whitfield Fellowship. George Whitfield was an evangelist in the uh, 18th century in the American colonies, helped give us the first great awakening, and his statue just got pulled down at the University of Pennsylvania because he did own slaves uh, in his orphanage, so they're taking down his uh, statue at the University of Pennsylvania. And so Ben Franklin actually built the first building at Pennsylvania so he could preach indoors. Do so. you think orphans and slaves would, like, cancel each other out, maybe? <laughs> yeah, you, you would think, but yeah, no, that's the greater the greater sin slavery rather okay, than letting some orphans it. starve. So, you know, George, George opposed it in the 1730s, and then he actually, they, they made slavery illegal in 17 Oglethorpe made it illegal in Georgia in 1730 like 8 and then Whitfield lobbied for it in the 1750s so kind of a mistake error sin on his part uh, our country would be radically different I, either way he shaped our nation for yep. good and ill uh, that's what he did so anyway the Whitfield Fellowship is the ministry I'm under but I'm also up here in uh, Moscow Idaho I've been working under Trinity Reformed Church but I'll probably be doing more work under Christ Church now so can I just get you on record then? Keith Darrell, campus preacher, is against slavery? Uh, I'm a, well, define slavery. <laughs> so, so, yes, yes, I am, I am against, I'll say I'm against man stealing. So, thou shalt not steal applies to human beings. And so, if your definition of slavery is me running out, taking you home, and making you work for me, uh, yes, I oppose that understanding of slavery. So. I just want to say, on behalf of all Christendom everywhere, that's a very brave position you're taking. <laughs> and, and I hope others hear that position, that brave, courageous stand Keith Darrell's taking, and, and go and do likewise. Yeah. Be equally I'm, I'm against racism. I'm against beating women. I, I take all the layups. You know what I mean? So, so culturally, I take the layups. All, it's all the other issues I try to avoid. So Now, you started in, in terms of uh, real jobs. A- after getting off government welfare, you went to Wall Street, uh-huh. and then you went to Wall Street back to welfare, okay. yeah. right? Uh-huh. So why did you leave a finance job in New York to to then fundraise for a living and, and do campus preaching? Because uh, I'm stupid, I think. Uh, so actually in 2009, so I, I was converted in 1993. 
And I saw a man preaching who was a Pelagian and open theist, so it was horrendous preaching. And the stuff he was saying was, was horrendous. But I didn't have enough philosophy of ministry to know that what he was actually doing was wrong. I just saw, okay, he's publicly preaching. I was a believer for about a month and a half at that point. Went home, I read Acts. I was like, well, they're publicly preaching. So this idea of publicly preaching should be somewhat normative. Um, and so that's the thing that kind of persuaded me. Then I started reading revivals, Whitfield, Wesley, the, uh, Bunyan, uh, field pre- they call it field preaching and stuff like that. So I became sold that it was historically and biblically relevant and re- the reality. Um, and so why did I leave finance? So, so I went, actually, I went to go work in finance because uh, to be honest, there, there's a certain level where ministry is not a real job. It's just so different and you don't have a tangible product. And I worked in construction over the summers in college and that was kind of meaningful. You could look at a basement after furnishing it at the, and you're like, okay, I did something. Whereas open air preaching, it's not always tangible. So it can be frustrating. Um, also your hours, everything else. So, so there's a certain level where it wasn't, I was, uh, I was raised in the Midwest and I just wanted to get out of the Midwest, go to New York city or Seattle, experience a different culture, go get a real job and know that I could be successful in other terms rather than just ministry. Um, Because even going to seminary, I felt like a lot of men didn't want to work, to be honest with you. And uh, so I wanted to know that I had some work ethic and I wanted to work. And so I moved to New York and fortunately things worked out that I could work in finance. But in 2009, I had about seven people in my life all from different walks of my life say, hey, you're wasting your life in finance. Go preach the gospel. So I was like, all right, that's the Lord's. Internally, I was ready to go. Externally, I had a call. So I was like, all right, I'm going. So about eight months later, I just sold everything I had, began to travel and preach. And by the grace of God, 10 years later, I'm still able to travel and preach. And yeah, it's not real lucrative, but I mean, fortunately, I have a lot of people, good people around me who, for the most part, want to underwrite the ministry and keep me preaching and stuff like that. So So how, how many years have you been doing the preaching thing again? Straight 10 years. I left April of 2010 is when I left my job in finance. So it's been 10 years I've been doing it. So uh, Before before getting to the ad- advice section, uh, story time. Okay. So I want just the craziest stories you've got over those 10 years being on campus. All right. Well, there's a bunch of Everybody wants to punch stories. So the punch stories are the ones that are, I think I've been, it's either six or seven times. Like the last time I got rocked, I, I almost went night-night on campus. <laughs> and uh, my, yeah, so 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 when you're about to go night-night, you, you, you question, but I took it like a champ. My, I, I look like a deer on ice briefly, but, uh, but I took it like a champ. So uh, the first time I got hit was actually here in Moscow in 2012. And it's actually relatively funny because one of the things I'm actually hysterical you may not pick that up on this podcast but I'm probably top two top three people funny that you know hands down pound for pound one of the funniest people in America and so when I'm so when I'm on campus I mean my jokes are uh, they're usually hit well it's a tough crowd it's how, all uh, how imperative is the pound for pound it's vital to the stats it's vital to the stats and so so I am uh, so I'm preaching and this girl's walking towards me, side of her head shaved. She's got combat boots on. And I was just reading Psalm 24 at that point. But I was like, jackpot. She's getting my crowd going. So, but she was just beeline it down this long walkway. And, uh, and we started getting a crowd at this point. And she comes out and she goes, you're judgmental. And I was like, well, what if I said just judgmental? She says, you want to take away a woman's right to choose? I said, I'm just reading Psalm 24. I haven't talked about taking, anyways, uh, taking away anyone's right of doing anything. So we started going back and forth with little one-liners. And everyone's laughing. And there's probably like 150 kids at this point, 200 kids. And we're all laughing because like, it's funny. Like we're kind of like, it's like high school cuts. You know what I mean? At that point. So <laughs> your mama's this and your mama's that. And, uh, and so we're going back and forth. And she ran out of them. It wasn't my fault. She ran out of things to say. <laughs> so she went gutter on me. And so she runs out of things. She goes gutter. She goes, oh, you know what? You're an ignorant pedophile. Which was like, what? And so that was outside of our realm. of. Since when did Michael Jackson get into this discussion? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So out of the blue. So I say, you know what? 
And I think I was right, but I said, you know what? When you say something like that, I think you're dealing with your own issues out here. And then she, bam, she wallops me. And then she winds up to hit me again. I run away. I was like, whoa. I start running from her. Everybody's kind of laughing. She turns around. She starts walking through the crowd. And, uh, and I thought it'd be funny. I go, oh, even though you're a feminist, you still hit like a girl. And uh, everyone booed me. It was like, boo, boo, <laughs> boo. So, um, so that was probably one of the, that was pretty wild. Um, so this past uh, January, I was preaching in Arizona. And... Uh, things get rolling and uh it was kind of funny there was a so yeah so i'm preaching abortion comes up and to be honest with you i don't spend a tons of time on abortion but i just say hey look if i was an 18 to 22 year old woman and i got pregnant on a and i was in college and here it is legal in the united states and you can make the problem go away i, I was like i understand your temptation here you are you think your life's gonna be ruined i think i can understand the temptation with an abortion you make it go away but it doesn't make it right and uh, blah, blah blah and some girl goes well that's easy for you to say because you're white male economic privilege and she was a jewish girl and i was like ha, you jews and your economic privilege I was like, if you want to talk about economic privilege, you Jews are killing it. And so, so next, next thing I know, the whole place has lost their mind because the anti-Semite has spoken up on campus. And I said, I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm not talking about all Semites. I'm talking about the Jews. And so that is doubling down with a, with a double, double crazy. So next thing I know, there's a, a mob that is losing their minds. And she leaves and she comes back about an hour later, all huffy puffy. She comes back with a cackle. Is, a, is that a word? A group. A gaggle. A gaggle, not a cackle. A cackle's like a bad laugh. Yeah, she, really and she had, a, she had a bad laugh, too, so that's why I was thinking. So she comes back with, like, like a, a group of gays and stuff like that. And so they surround me, and they're literally, like, spitting on me. They're grabbing my beard, trying to kiss me. And so I'm, like, trying to get away from them. And, oh, I don't like this. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Please stop. Please stop. But what was crazy, so here you have these girls who, like, a few weeks ago, all like hashtag me too. God, these gay men have sexually assaulted me, and they're like, "It's just a kiss. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Me too is the big deal. That's this is my Me Too movement, everybody." So, so I'm laying out my. I'm like this. So finally, I was like, I can handle for the most part getting spit on, getting punched, all this sort of stuff. But when you're, they're trying to kiss me, that's so I'm like, okay. And I'm sizing them up. It's like there's three gays guys. I was like, I think I can take two of them. You know what I mean? I was like, I don't know if I can take all three, but I can. So in my head, I make the calculated risk that I'm gonna push this guy because he's grabbed my beard trying to kiss me so I pushed the one guy then I was going to hit the other guy these girls come running as soon as I push the other guy and then then the police step in and when the police step in I get behind them and like a 6'2 brother just wham decks me from the back and that's when I was like a deer on ice I was like whoa, 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 whoa. My, my knees were like whoa, 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 whoa. and my glasses go flying off and for it was basically like if you've ever been in a wave where you just get tossed and slammed like yeah it really was it was, was kind of like I didn't know heads or tails for a split second it really rung my bell and um and then uh, the police put him down, cuff him. They walk me off, and, uh, and then from there, yeah, they, you know, I, I wasn't able to get my story to the like I was able to give my story to police, but like the guy who sexually assaulted me and stuff like that, it was like, you know, they wanted to make a big deal of me pushing him. I was like, I was being sexually assaulted. You know, you wouldn't. I, 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 I was just in what I was doing. So that got pretty crazy. So there's there's a handful of those that are that have happened. What are, what are some other? You've also had some good ones where people have been. You know, you see people converted, and, and usually, oftentimes, the person who hits me. Um, is actually the person who's who I've kind of, in a sense, maybe impacted the most. That's why it doesn't really bother me because they're the ones who are dealing with what I'm saying. The people just walk by with the middle finger or tell me to go get a real job loser. They're not engaged with any, anything I'm saying. The person hitting me has listened to me in some sense and was just like, ah, and they've lost it. Yeah. Then they have to realize, I just hit a guy. You know what I mean? I was walking down the street in Montana one time 
come out of a coffee shop 10 o'clock in the morning and I just hear you effing Christians so uh, you know probably nettle them a little bit with God bless you you know what I mean a real real happy God bless you on a wave and there's like a cartoon where you see the smoke come out of his ears his head go off and he rides up on his bike and bam decks me just keeps riding and then the next semester I'm back on campus and he comes riding through my circle and he's like hey what's up preacher man I was like the guy who hits me he's like yeah how you doing I was like I was like what in the world so uh, and you know I wasn't able to totally follow up with him but more often than not the people who are doing that sort of thing remember being in Southern California there was a guy who came up to me at the end of the day and he kind of had his hands out it was kind of funny because a Christian was sitting next to me I'm sitting on the wall at the end of the day and this guy I thought he was going to shake my hand he goes get that effing hand out of my face you're a piece can I say shit on your thing yeah you guys can beep yeah you can say beep 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 he's been talking into a cell phone and we don't have listeners you know what I mean who am I who am I kidding you know what I mean do you guys we have thousands of listeners you know those guys you met earlier yeah they're cool. do you, wait I, my question is do you guys care if I say that word so, so you're the only ones who are going to hear it so if Keith cusses in the forest um, so, so so if I cuss on Stone Mountain Podcast does anyone hear it so that's the question alright so good to go more people will hear it than your non-uploaded podcast <laughs> yeah good point fair enough so so um so he starts calling me piece shit laying into me and uh it was kind of funny he says the, the christian next to me because i say to the guy is like well don't you think it's a little bit ironic you're calling me. i was like i'm when i'm out here you know i'm seeking to stake my position but i'm not calling piece of shit i was like you're the one calling me that so you're the one who has to think you're better than me because obviously you think you're better than a piece of shit so you're the one so i'm just like just making them go nuts and he ends up stomping off, and the guy next to me is like, "Why would you do?" I was like, "Don't worry, he'll be back." I was like, "I was like, a guy like that, he, he's like, he's so worked up, he'll be back." And sure enough, a week later, he was like, "Hey, man, I want to apologize for last week because," and he went, did all this reading on Whitfield. He's like, "I saw you're part of the Whitfield Fellowship. I did all this reading on Whitfield and da da da." And he just did all this reading, and you know, he, didn't, to my knowledge, didn't become a believer. But that guy I know is engaged. That's why I'm even like sometimes, and, and it takes wisdom on sometimes. Like it's, it's like a coach. Like sometimes you see the coach grab the guy's mask in his face. Sometimes he'll just put his arm around. Him. There's a there's a story of uh, Steve Spurrier and Danny Warfel, and Danny Warfel threw an interception. He's walking off, and uh, Steve Spurrier, uh, he says to Steve Spurrier, he's like, hey, coach, I'm sorry about that. He goes, no, 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 it's my fault. I'm the one who put you in the game. And so sometimes you need to, sometimes you need to say, like, ah, uh, you know. And so, so the point is, is, like, sometimes in your evangelism, there's an element of coaching. You have to have some wisdom. So when you have children someday, some, some you're going to spank them on the butt because they did something. Others, you're going to let them go. So anyway, in evangelism, you need some, you know, obviously I'm saying, oh, look at me, I have wisdom. But that's what I'm trying to size up is this guy I can throw some punches with. This person I'm not going to throw him with. And sometimes you make the wrong decision. Sometimes make the right decision so yeah but yeah and, and you know and even probably my favorite I, I tell it all the time probably my favorite there's actually two kind of conversion stories uh, but there was a young woman again in Southern California she was asking me questions. She had to have a Christian background, but she ended up asking me, like, tell me about the soul. I always hear about the soul in Christianity. What's the soul? I was like, well, I believe man has a soul, but the emphasis in the Bible is the resurrection of the body. And uh, I started talking about the resurrection of the body a little bit and stuff like that. And then she's like, it was like a light bulb went on in front. She goes, oh, that's why the tomb was empty. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And he's like, oh my goodness, all day you've been saying Jesus is Lord. And of course, if he's the Lord, you'd obey him. You know what I mean? So it, she just needed that resurrection peace. And so often we're preaching the salvation of your soul, not the resurrection of the body. And and so Jesus' resurrection comes a tag on to our apologetic dead men don't rise jesus rose from the dead therefore jesus is god no he rose from the dead because he's a righteous man jesus is a faithful adam that's why he's resurrected from the dead and yes he is god in the flesh but his resurrection is not an apologetic for his divinity it's a, an apologetic to his uh, that, that god justified and that he was a righteous man so so it's a vindication of that and so when we preach the gospel to people and if you read the book of acts they're constantly preaching this christ whom you've crucified is resurrected they're not preaching salvation from hell although they would preach the coming judgment um and so we often skew the gospel where the gospel is that Jesus Christ is King, He's Lord, and that's what we're out there announcing. And He's that through His resurrection that He's established. 
God's kingdom. And so that girl needed that resurrection piece because if we're just preaching the salvation of souls, creation doesn't really make sense. The resurrection doesn't make sense. Baptism doesn't make sense. The Lord's Supper doesn't make sense. So all this physicality that we're engaged with as human beings doesn't make sense. But the minute the incarnation and resurrection come home to you, then you're like, oh, what's well, the missing piece to creation, to re redemption, and everything else? So anyway, that's probably my probably one of my favorite components. Yeah. I mean, he was he was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. The Bible says that uh, the resurrection is the seal of our justifications. Or, uh, yeah, the seal of our justifications. If we don't have that, I mean, we're really not, really not giving people hope mm -hmm. for not talking about the resurrection. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, we're not, you know, we're, we're sympathetic to the strands of Greek thought, but we're not Greeks that we just believe in the immortality of the soul. We look forward to the resurrection of the body, so. You've been touching on this, but um, you're, you're going to hear a lot through your life. Uh, well, Keith, you know, what you're doing doesn't really have a lot of fruit, mm -hmm. right? You know, where's the fruit? Why should we be giving time, attention to this? It's not really effective. So just speak specifically to that. Yeah, so... Uh, there, there's a couple different ways, I, I guess, to kind of measure fruit. And so in one sense, I'm willing to say abs I absolutely agree. If you're talking about immediacy, that there's some revival taking place on a college campus, every time I preach, you're 100% right. It's, it's relatively ineffective. But it, what I try to explain it to people as is you got to see it as a movie rather than a snapshot. And if you see the movie, so what I, where I see most of my fruit, to be honest, is I preach on campus, someone goes back to their dorm, and over the next couple of weeks, because of interactions I have with Christians, where they go back to the dorm and say, hey, you see the guy preaching, and what do you guys think of that? And then they share the gospel with them, and then they become believers. And, and then within it, so I would say there's, there's two things that I end up seeing uh, from it that are fruit. So the, the immediate fruit, the most immediate fruit are actually usually Christian men who've never heard some of the stuff that I'm saying on a college campus. And they're kind of glad. Like I, I usually often describe it as like a UFC fight. And a lot of guys are kind of like, yeah, this is great. Like some, some men don't like it. But for the most part, Christian men are often drawn to it. Uh, because the benefit that I have is the unbeliever are asking me specific questions about the Bible that the evangelical church often ignores. We don't talk about the flood. We don't talk about the wiping out of the Canaanites. We don't talk about stoning the homosexual. Let's keep those verses in the closet. Whereas when you're doing open air preaching, well, it, nice. it, it's been it's been made. Uh, I missed it. I was, I was about to say stoning the homosexual is legal in California. It should be because it's a crypto caliphate, so they should they should. Well, I was just saying. I mean, they have dispensaries all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it should be. But um... Ga Gavin Newsom is for stoning homosexuals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we are killing it with our material. We, this is this is this is why you pay the big bucks. Um, so, so most people are afraid afraid of those verses. Whereas, like when they're you know, and we seek to expound them. I'm not I'm not ashamed of those verses. Um, but I also think that they're reasonable for 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 the nature of creation and stuff like that. And you need to put these things in a bigger context. So oftentimes the immediate fruit is Christian men and indirect fruit is over time people become believers because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I don't expect, even when I'm out there preaching, when I'm realizing more and more, many of the people I'm interacting with actually know nothing of what I'm talking about. So it'd be kind of like if you just walk up to a random girl and ask her out, we were joking about that earlier, um, more often than not, if, there's, if it's totally random, she's probably going to be no. Yeah. What if I look like this? If you, it's definitely going to be a no. So, <laughs> so, so, so it's, a, it's an easy no. That's a layup. That's a layup question. Can I, can I interject a story real quick? Yeah. So we, uh, we've been meeting, we just started an outdoor service. We don't have a church building down in San Diego, so we're meeting outside in a sister church's parking lot. And uh, towards the end of service, or right at the end of service, this homeless guy walks in and he's got all his stuff and he's like, store I see him storing it under one of like the, they have like an outdoor table. And he's like opening up drawers and like putting stuff in there. And I'm like, this guy, what is this? This guy's bold. I kind of appreciate the boldness, but I'm gonna go talk to this guy. I'm like, hey man, you can't just come on here. The pastors for that other, the church we meet, are meeting at aren't there, but he drops like all of their names. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this guy's cool with me, this guy's cool with me. Like, okay, okay, this guy seems legit. But I was like, you're here, I'm gonna share the gospel with you, right? So we, we talk about it. He's been kind of going to this church in and out for a while. Share the gospel. He seemingly comes to saving faith, told him he needs to get baptized in that church. It was a great interaction. 
And this guy had a great beard. So David at the end comments, hey, great beard. And this guy who just professed faith in Christ, right? Repentance from sin, faith in Christ, tells Dave he's got a great beard too. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you just got saved. The first thing you're going to do is lie. <laughs> I was like, this is not the Christian life. <laughs> he's like, no, no, no. It's, it's he's like, no, no, no. It's unique. It's unique. <laughs> <laughs> it's discipleship. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't expect perfection yeah, right yeah, upon birth, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Not you know, not every child is born walking right uh-huh, off the gate. Yeah, it takes a little bit to walk. And you got to crawl before you can walk and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, so couple couple more questions with evangelism. Um, so you regularly, I've seen you regularly preach out of Psalm twenty four. Mm-hmm. Uh, why why did you choose that passage? What are you looking to accomplish, you know, specifically when you're leading out with Psalm 24? Yeah, so so to hopefully not sound too charismatic on y'all, I usually, well, it's kind of funny, so... So a few years ago, I was praying over, I usually pray like what I should preach on going into the semester, and I try to have a theme or something like that, and I, I pray about it, but a few years ago, probably six now, maybe, uh, or so, uh, it was kind of like, honestly, it was just like, preach Psalm 24, so... I was like, all right. So, and it was, it was interesting. So for a semester, honestly, like I would just read Psalm 24 and I would look up and there'd be like 7,500 people. Get, like it was like the easiest semester gathering a crowd. Well, I was, I was about to ask the next question is how do you gather a crowd? So apparently you do nothing. Yeah. Well, we, so we can get there. So, but what was funny is like for a semester, it was just like, I would just read Psalm 24, bam, built in crowd. And then in the fall, I was just like, oh, all I do is read Psalm 24, read Psalm 24, look up, no one's there. You know what I mean? So, so then you gotta, then you gotta start fishing. And so, um, so the reason I chose Psalm 24, well, in a sense, I believe that I was praying about it. And I would say the Lord told me to preach Psalm 24. Uh, but within that, it allows me to do a couple things. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. So I'm, I'm able to kind of just cover everybody at that point. Look, if you're on this earth, yep. it's, you're on the Lord's, you know what I mean? And the Lord owns you, and you owe your allegiance to him. But then it also says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. So I can also go after some moral issues as well. And so that's, so how do I get a crowd? I do one of those two things. I either go after uh, how everybody there owes their allegiance to Yahweh, or I'll go after a moral issue. So if there's, you know, the Me Too movement. So, for example, last year, my crowd getter was you usually building out of Jeffrey Epstein. So I would start off with, uh, so uh, he had his clean hands and a pure heart. So here we are at whatever university. And, um, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you guys were part of the cultural and sexual revolution on this campus. Uh, but over the summer, Jeffrey Epstein got arrested. And during an interview with the New York Times, he says that, look, the way he has sex has been normative down through the ages is taboo in our own culture. So if you consider someone like Hugh Hefner 60 years ago, um, he didn't put his name on the first couple of issues of Playboy magazine because he wasn't sure how it was going to go. But once he gained momentum, you know, now we all know what the Playboy mansion is. Everybody knows what the name Playboy is. And when he died, many people celebrated his death. But he was a wicked man, just as Jeffrey Epstein is a wicked man. But my question for you guys is, is this? How do we know that Jeffrey Epstein is not this generation's Hugh Hefner? How do we know that uh, he's not? Yeah, it's taboo, just as pornography is taboo. But you get, but the average college student is looking at porn on a regular basis, and so they don't think anything of it. Even the women at this point, they're so used to men looking at it, they don't think. And even women are addicted to it. So it was. That's kind of. So I'm going after like a moral issue along those lines, or some intellectual issue about the truth of Christianity. And then honestly, like, and you just kind of throw bread on the water, and next thing you know, someone will chime in. Like you ask questions, and then you get them going back and forth, and then once it gets rolling it's kind of a self-sustaining crowd and honestly like most days i usually preach from noon to five noon to six and i'm able to have a crowd until uh uh until they go home and i break out my chair usually around four four thirty depending on there, there's and there, you can feel the momentum it's kind of like if you're watching a basketball game or a football game you can feel the momentum shift like I, I there's kind of a momentum in my day like there are times where i have my crowd like i can have a huge crowd i'm like they're not anchored they could leave at any moment there are other times I'm like I can do whatever I want for the next two hours. They're not going anywhere. I just, you just feel it. You just know this is what's going on. And then there's a point in the day where you, you kind of like you're over the hill. You start to shake out the people who just want to mock and jeer. And then you kind of have maybe, say, 
25, 30 people there who are a little more sincere and, and you're looking for your last 15 people towards the end of the day, say seven believers, seven non-believers, eight unbelievers, and then like I'm in my chair, I'm interacting with them until they don't want to interact and they're and they're and that's where it's much more sincere, much more fruitful. But I'm kind of shaking, it's kind of like panhandling for gold or whatever you call that and you're shaking out everything else to try to get those nuggets that are the people who are genuinely interested so that's what I'm building for and so the crowd's based on throwing out questions and then someone responds and then from there like like part of its personnel like people want to interact with me you know what I mean so like, sometimes some guys I know want to they just want because to because you're top two funniest guy pound yeah, for pound in the well, world my comedy does not go well on college campus but I am funny thing I'm funny can I tell something funny on campus one time give an illustration of where my, my buddy Sean loves this we're preaching at Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania and a young woman there great crowd it's rocking and real and young girl and like they always want to talk about homosexuality I get tired of talking about it so I'm, I'm dodging the issue and a young girl goes I'm a lesbian um uh, that's da, 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 something about talking about homosexuality. I was like, ah, I don't think you're a lesbian. I just keep preaching, and so eventually, over it, like, and, and like every few minutes, she's like, why don't you think I'm a lesbian? I was like, eh, you're not a lesbian. And just keep for like an hour. And by by the end of the hour, the whole crowd's going, why don't you think she's a lesbian? Why don't you think? She's a and I go, uh, she doesn't have a moat and a softball shirt, and and the place blue blue. I thought it was gonna be so funny, and I mean the place an angry mob, and I kind of joke, Sean, start the van, start the van. You know, me running through a field with them chasing to me in hot pursuit because it was just like I thought it'd be funny it did not go it was not funny at all so um but yeah so anyway that's the arc of the day and I I try to you know there are and it's kind of funny sometimes people realize I'm joking I say a lot of things tongue-in-cheek um stuff like that so so yeah you're trying to navigate those waters but that's kind of what, what's going on you seem like a pretty charismatic guy like quick-witted uh did it take a lot of uh a lot of time was there like a nervousness on the front end because asking questions is is really putting yourself up to kind of the the will of whoever's going to be responding to a question, which means you need to have the confidence in your own ability to, to answer that question well. Um, so did you start with street preaching like that? or And if you did, you know, what was the... What was the process of building that kind of confidence? Yeah, good, good question. I, uh, yeah, so I'm still scared every day I go out there. I'm nervous. Um, and it, it's more the nerves. Once the first few words are out, they kind of dissipate. Uh, because, yeah, can, you, know, cause you do kind of feel naked. If you don't get a crowd, you know what I mean? Like, when you have 100 people gather around, I'm very rarely nervous. Like, I, there's not too much I'm going to hear that's brand new to me. Um, but one of the things uh, – so, so one of the best things that happened for me was very early on in street preaching being willing to say, I don't know. Uh, that's one – like – you're much better off just saying I don't know than trying to half bake an answer to somebody Um, but I was in seminary so I took a semester off of seminary traveled and preached and learned a lot during that time and I was by myself living out of a Volkswagen bus and I would just read like eight hours a day the other time I was preaching sleeping praying and so that was basically what my life was for 15 weeks return to seminary I go out once a week to the University of Missouri and every time I got a question I just say I don't know but I'll be back next week with an answer and that that's how I began to kind of build my repertoire was kind of I don't know I'll be back next week I'd go home and research that thing um, and then I started reading the probably one of the most helpful things was getting a little bit more into like broader philosophy reading uh, Bertrand Russell's uh, problems with problems problems in philosophy I think it's called problems in philosophy a guy named Bram Blanchard uh, reason and analysis and I started reading uh, secular atheistic uh, unbelievers and that was probably one of the most helpful things because I, I, it just kind of helped me think about issues more broadly mm-hmm. um, and once I had the broader picture and so when I'm out there I, I usually say two things I, I kind of joked I'm like Bob Ross I'm, I was like guys I'll I'll put the happy trees in later. I'm just, I'm just kind of painting my easel right now, or not the easel, but the, whatever the, the, the initial. I'm just doing the broad strokes right, right. now. And so, um, yeah. So it took a little bit to get there. At this point, I feel like there's 
most things are within kind of 50 questions that I'm somewhat familiar with. And yeah. the place where they can usually stymie me, there's, there, you know, there's plenty of things in Ezekiel and Isaiah that I don't know the answer to right off the bat. Um, but like I said, like no one ever has a problem with, I don't know. So when I just say, I don't know, like, it's amazing how people are like, okay, thanks. Like yeah. th th they'll accept that rather than me half bake it and realizing I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. You're not, yeah, you're not, you're not seeding the entire argument mm -hmm. or your entire purpose of being there for a, a couple. I don't know's here and there. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and what you realize, yeah, pe people readily accept that. And it's a, it is a good, it is a good answer. And you don't, and the reality of it is even when you go to do evangelism, I think it's one of the problems with apologetics oftentimes is we put a lot of confidence in our arguments and yeah. rather than just being confident and somehow explaining the story of the death, the bell, resurrection of Jesus, and that's the power of God and salvation. Right, so. and it's and really it's it's just applying, you know, it's applying the uh, reality that nothing we do in the Christian life is going to be perfect, and we don't wait till we're perfect as something to go get after it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I, you know, I really struggle to read my Bible without having like a self righteousness about it, and it's like, well, the answer is definitely not don't read your Bible. Yeah, uh -huh. it's the same with evangelism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, point. Case in point is the phrase. Case in point, this podcast. Don't wait till you do something well to do it. <laughs> but uh, going back to the, the whole crowd thing, mm -hmm. when I was in college, the college ministry I ran with was really into evangelism. If you were comparing us to InterVarsity, we were the bold, in-your-face evangelists. But we thought very little of street preachers. Mm -hmm. So we did street evangelism, but street preaching, we, we thought very little of. Um, and the guy that that led that ministry I had when I came into college I never saw a more gifted man in gathering a crowd for a Bible study and maintaining the interest of that crowd both for that night and then through a semester mm -hmm. and and so uh, yeah truly gifted truly skilled at that and then I was there long enough to see stretches where there was hardly anybody at that Bible study mm -hmm. And so there's some, some mix there of just the dispensation of the Lord mm -hmm. and then this guy's combo of personal gifting and skill crafted over time. Since then, many years have passed, and now I, I do appreciate and engage in street preaching, both at the abortion clinic and on college campuses, and I find getting a crowd very difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I've gone to college campuses to preach, which I've not done as much as going to the abortion clinic, which is a lot easier to kick up a crowd there. Mm -hmm. You just wake everyone up and get them to come out and scream at you for waking them up. But the, the college campus, I, I found it a lot more difficult there. So speak to the, the combo you think there is. What's, what's the math equation on just the dispensation of the Lord, the season, and then personal gifting? So I, Keith Darrell, just have a personal gift here. Or and then I, Keith Darrell, I'm utilizing things that I've had to just craft over the years that anyone could craft. Yeah, great question. So even like Whitfield, he, I, I want to say like his, I think he came to the United States eight times, if I remember correctly. And in that, maybe like his first three or four were really huge. Like when you think of George Whitfield preaching and there being 20,000 people in the commons, but some of his later tours, like he barely got anything going and he wasn't as fruitful and effective. Uh, so for me, thinking of that, like in, from 2012, I think it was 12 to like 15, Cal State Fulton was probably my favorite place to preach. And I would have these monster crowds. Students were passing around petitions, get me banned from campus. Like I, I I would literally just be walking on the street in LA and people would be yelling at me because of my presence at Cal State amazing. Fulton. Yeah, and it really, it was genuine, like, and it was just a favor of the Lord. Like, it was, it was genuinely amazing. And all the time, I was having people saying, hey, I became a believer last week. Hey, this, I hate Christianity because, you, like, it was amazing. I roll out there, I want to say it was 2016, and, like, fortunately over the past year, I've been able to have some pretty good meetings there. But, like, 2016 to, like, 19, just, I mean, 
like, what, what in the world? And it was, I almost hated going there because, like, I had such a romance about it where it was like, oh, this campus is – and then I get there. And it's like – so some of it is just flat out. The, and then uh, on the flip side, Iowa State, 2011, 12, 13, 14, just phenomenal 13. Uh, just huge, phenomenal meetings all day. And I couldn't get anything going at the University of Iowa. Then in 2013, it just flipped. And in 2013, I remember going there in the spring. I preached here for two straight weeks. And, like, it was the closest I feel like I've been a part of a revival because people just sit in the field and listen to me. for And, like, and it's terrifying. I remember this Indian Christian girl be, like, crying. Like, the Lord's moving. And there are Christians there who are, like, I was meeting them in the morning. We were praying before I go out and preach. And then we'd get dinner afterwards. We'd pray at night. And for two weeks, I was able to be there. And I returned a year later. I think I preached here in the fall, pretty good meetings. Then the following spring, though, those Christians wouldn't talk to me anymore. So I don't know who got to them or what could they wouldn't really talk to me and one of the girls actually emailed me years later didn't give me any details but hey blah 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 um hope the word of god still burns in you as as it burned in me when you preached during that time and but like she was one of the girls that wouldn't talk to me and so like it was just so you just had those weird elements that that happen that that, that is the lord's work um on the flip side you do have kind of like some of its personality like i think that like the Lord's wired me to do this. So kind of like a combination of I have a pretty, I have a breadth of knowledge on studying and memorizing a scripture and being able to be quick witted and say things. So that's kind of like a natural gifting and wiring. Some things you can still learn. Um, and some things I like, it's, it's kind of like one of those things, like something I do naturally that I'll explain to somebody and like, Oh yeah, that's in our speaking class. We do da 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 da. And so it, like, to me, it's just kind of intuitive, like, personal interaction skills so for one of those for example where I'm maybe different than a lot of preachers is I don't like to stand on something like if I'm having trouble getting a crowd I'll hop on something but in general I know that everybody there thinks I'm judging them so if I can have them over me looking down on me that's ideal because then you could stand on a box and they'd still be over <laughs> yeah pretty short but but uh, <laughs> but within that I would my ideal is have them over me to be judging me rather than because I'm already judging them so there are those sorts of dynamics that I think help that I think that with a little bit of practice and within that there, it's, it's like anything you can kind of learn but but I think some of the things a loud voice uh, you can kind of learn um, I think developing your material and it kind of really depends on what, what your desire for the day is like some guys just want to preach um, I want the interaction I want the back and forth going um, it's going to keep more people around it's going to people engage and that's maybe a little bit more difficult to, to teach um, that's that fishing you're talking about yeah so you, you got nobody and you're, if my understanding is you're looking for someone that if you can aggravate sufficiently where they make noise, they're going to draw a crowd. Is that right? Yeah. Or, or, or even if they're willing to a dialogue. So even, even if you, it's either someone who's kind of like slightly triggered or you get the, or you get the basic, uh, uh, basic talk going. Like once you get a few questions going and, and so that's kind of the main thing. You got to get that question. Like my day, like my day is unsustainable if I don't get questions going. Um, because I'm not out there, like no one really, like there'll be unique times where maybe people want to listen to me for like an hour straight. But for the most part, I don't have an hour of material planned to, to be extemporaneous like that. Um, most of it is, you know, impromptu back and forth off of questions, comments, demands and all that. And that's what I often say. So it's, uh, you're trying to size that up to, um, yeah, to kind of get at the nature, yeah, to, to keep the crowd going. So some of that's kind of hard to teach other people. You, like, I'll go out with somebody who wants to join me, and you kind of like, you're like, ah, I don't know if they'll, uh, you know, it's kind of like someone wants to be a running back. Like, you might be a good wide receiver, you're not going to be a running back. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's certain builds, certain gifts, talents that, look, I don't I don't care how fast you are, you're just a wide receiver, you're not a running back, or you're not a quarterback. And and that's the sort of thing as a body of Christ we have to be comfortable with. And that's even one of the main criticisms, I guess, is this the way to do it? Like, kind of like you were mentioning, you, you guys didn't love street preaching. And part of it, like, it, the good thing for me, what it's made me do is realize, okay, not every, like there are different parts of the body. And if your job is 
looking after people's children, look after people's children, and be faithful. You know what I mean? Like it's made me appreciate that there are other parts of the body. Not everybody's supposed to be doing this. So we didn't like it because the street preacher we knew was Brother Ross, who was oh, yeah, the, you know, the, I, I know yeah, who he is, yeah, Brother Ross, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, like Pelagian. Uh, I've, I've been sending X amount of years, and uh, he was uh, I, I, the only thing I know of him because uh, he'd preach in Virginia. Is I'd go somewhere and I'd be in his kind of in his wake, and and like you know he, he's a black guy, so he just be like Martin Luther King's going to hell, uh, Barack Obama's going to hell. So, so he just he would just be out there yelling about black people going to hell the whole time, <laughs> and people would lose their minds, you know what I mean? Because and uh, and so yeah, so he would, uh, but yeah, his theology is uh, pretty horrendous and everything else, and so um, yeah, that that was a thing that kind of drove him, and um, but yeah, and and so and that's one of the maybe advantages I have is I am probably one of the few like reformedish. I would say I would say Presbyterian because you do have a few reformed guys that kind of in MacArthur's vein, if that makes sense. I'm I'm not a MacArthurite. I'm covenantal in my views and blah blah blah. So that that plays out different ways on how you view evangelism, the church. There's a, it, speaking about what reformed is. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, what do you mean? Well, I'm not a dispensationalist because I am reformed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, and but yeah, you have a lot of guys who are dispensational they're, and they're that kind of MacArthurite sort of view of things. So anyway, um, so you have some other guys out there doing it, but for the most part, I'm kind of one of the, to my knowledge, one of the few Presbyterians and uh, kind of covenantal guys evangelizing. Um, whereas a lot of the others are, are a little bit more dispensational and stuff like that. And because of the just juice you bring to the game, we forgive you for your false <laughs> doctrine of baptism. <laughs> uh, in terms of knowing where to preach on each campus, is that just research you have, have, have had to do uh, for each campus? Yeah, I usually show up. I tr- if I've never been on a campus before, I try to get out there about an hour early, an hour or two, or two hours early. And what I'll do is I usually, the first two places I usually go to the library and the student union. And those are usually the two main hubs of activity. And so I usually go to those two places first. And sometimes you're walking between the two and you're like, no, this is the spot. And so you, and you kind of feel it's like a, if you move to town, you're kind of like, no, this is the neighborhood I want to be in. And you kind of, it's kind of subjective, but you scout the campus and you can just kind of tell, like, where can people gather? Um, where are people moving and stuff like that? And so, yeah, you just kind of look for, like, the center, chief concourse of activity. And have you had any, like, legality issues in terms of, like, how do you figure out legality where you're allowed to be? So I hear the wisdom on, like, this is a place where I'm going to actually have people walking by or potentially congregating. But what about, like, the legality side of things? My operating assumption is the First Amendment backs me until they tell me otherwise. And then if they say I need to go through hoops, sometimes I'll read, sometimes I'll get there and I'll type in the school First Amendment or free speech and you'll see that it's wide open. Other schools you'll see they want a three day and it, sometimes I'll read that and I was like, oh, I'll kind of push and challenge it. I got arrested once in Youngstown, Ohio. A real Barney Fife guy, totally out of control and uh, so I got charged with disorderly conduct and I ended up just pleading no contest because I was supposed to go to New Zealand and I wasn't going to, they wouldn't let me defer my trial until I got back. Like I'm going to flee the country or something like that for a disorderly conduct or disturbing the peace, whatever they charged me with. Um, they like they, they booked you on that? Yeah, I got, yeah, I got, it was kind of funny. I'll, I'll say this. I'm, I'm probably one of the worst martyrs in history. So the cop gets me uh, and he cussed me, throws me in the back and like I couldn't remember a single Bible verse, no songs. You know what I mean? Here I am in a jail cell in Youngstown, Ohio. <laughs> utterly useless. Completely and totally. In my head, there's like, this martyrdom is going to be glorious. I'm going to be fed to a lion, lit on fire. I'll be singing the whole time and people will hear angels on. Gosh, how's just, that verse start? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, God so loved. Did he love the world? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I was useless. Utterly useless. So, um, so I've had a few legality things. I've challenged it with a few campuses um, here and there with some organizations. For the most part, I'll say the times I've used the ACLU, they're exponentially better than the Christian organizations. Um, they're kind of like Jewish pit bulls, basically, is what they are. And uh, so they go after them pretty rapidly. Um, but the... Uh, <laughs> 
but yeah, the Christian ones are kind of, I feel like, are, like, I don't think they have the funding in the same way. Gotcha. And, and in general, like when I got arrested in Ohio, man, I had, you know who Cedric the Entertainer is? Like my lawyer was uh-huh. ba- basically Cedric the Entertainer. I was like, this guy's not getting me off of anything. You know? <laughs> sure enough, sure enough, he didn't, he didn't get me off of anything. You know what I mean? And uh, so, yeah, so, so the, the legality thing, you, you kind of learn along the way, but I assume the First Amendment until they tell otherwise. Gotcha. That's helpful. We're, we're going to have to take a break. In a few minutes uh, from one of our very lucrative sponsors. Uh-huh. But before that, uh, unless you, Sean, have any more questions about evangelism, I wanted to make a shift. Shift it up. Ready for the shift? Go. Okay, so recently you did a podcast episode with Aaron Ventura. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, what's the podcast called? Philosophy Fridays. It's a part of CRF, Collegiate Reform Fellowship, up here, and they, it was called Philosophy Fridays. So. If someone types in Philosophy Fridays on Apple Podcasts, it'll come up? It should come up. That, to my knowledge, it should come up. Philosophy Fridays, yeah. So, uh, in the in the podcast I remember, you, you got into Aristotelianism and Platonism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I wanted to just run through a, f- a few philosophical schools okay. and see if you could compare, uh, define, compare... One sec. Would you like to charge her back? That would be great, yeah. <laughs> a, a wonderful citizen le- has been letting us use her phone charger this whole time, and we're giving it back. Thank you kindly for your generosity. Yeah, Is this yours? Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're talking Aristotelianism <laughs> and Platonism. Thank you. Yeah, see you guys. See ya. So... Uh, in your defining, just compare Aristotelianism and Platonism for listeners. Yeah, I'm going to be more familiar with Plato than I'm Aristotle. Uh, but the 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 place where kind of Plato sets himself apart in most people's heads. So he's a little bit when we get the a little bit the concept the immortality of the soul is a bit more Platonic. And for the most part, what Platonism is in the simplistic way is when you think of he had this doctrine of forms. And so when you're looking at a horse, what he would want to say is what you really know. Now, Careful, because you're talking about my family here. <laughs> what? <You're> fa- <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what that means. But if so, if you're looking at a horse, that happens to me all the time. You <laughs> okay. Um, what? What? Uh, what kind of like what? What you know is not that particular horse because one day it can disintegrate and it'll change. But what you really know is hoarseness, and so you have this form called hoarseness that's invisible. That's kind of some other realm of knowing that is the 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 form of a horse and so Plato had this doctrine of the forms and those are the things that you really know and that they're universals and then the particular horse you're looking at is the particular and every particular horse is participating in the universal and so he would start with the universal and come to the particular my knowledge of Aristotle's I've read more Plato and I feel like I understand Plato better than Aristotle but Aristotle would go the other way you abstract from the particular horse to this universal called hoarseness so you do not necessarily have a um Oh my goodness, I, I, I'm confusing nominalism right now. But you don't have this thing called hoarseness that really exists in the empirical. Uh, what you have is the empirical horse, and you've abstracted to hoarseness. So, so it, it depends on where, where, where is the real thing? Is the real thing the hoarseness or the horse? Um, so, for Plato, it's the hoarseness. For the empiricist, the Aristotelian, it's going to be horse that is the the real thing. And, and with my understanding, with what you're saying regarding Platonism, it's the it's the affirmation that the immaterial category is as real as the particular material 
instantiation of that category. Yeah, as real and probably even more real because the thing before you is changing. And so if you think of river, uh, like the old, you never step in the same river of trice, the world's constantly changing. So this world is constantly in a world of flux and change. So like even you, you know, you change over seven years or whatever they, they say happens to the human body. So so you're constantly changing. And so the immortal soul is a thing that's somewhat constant um, or the form is a thing that you really know. And that's why you need these absolute universal truths. And that's even where like Christians, we want to affirm some strand of absolute truth, but we also want to fully affirm creation in a world that's in a process of becoming. And so what you have in, in simplistic terms of unbelieving philosophy is you can have this abstraction that doesn't change. You have this universal, but then you don't have the real world of becoming that you and I are in a very real way dealing with now. Like you and I are different from yesterday. You were in, you know, say Spokane yesterday. Now you're here. There's movement, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so the, the challenge that you have is abstracting things that become just like this uh, almost like a stagnant cosmos of things we know, uh, then you have the world of become that we don't know. And, and in some ways, that, that's where you kind of get strands of postmodernism is they want to say, no, we have this world of flux and change and pure contingency, and so everything's just constantly changing, so there's nothing fixed. Whereas Plato knows that you run into problems with that, so you want something fixed. Um, and so I would just, in many ways, it's kind of the debate down through history is are we empiricists or are we rationalists? And as Christians, we want to say, because of Colossians 1, Jesus holds all things together. So we, as Christians, we, we, we want to do the dance between the two because we realize we need both. We need a real horse before us and we also need this somehow this universal category that I can apply to other particulars so uh, one backtrack question and then moving forward on okay. based on what you just said so regarding Aristotle and I, you know I know you said you, you you've read him less than Plato but teaching an, a science class to the misfortune of all the students <laughs> and so that class on Monday and in prep I put up a periodic table not sure what it means but I put it up on my wall anyway because it makes me look smarter uh-huh. Yeah. And and on Throw it, a globe in there too. Yeah. I got a globe. <laughs> okay. Other side of the room is a globe. World map on one side, uh, periodic table on the other. One day I'm going to read it. So I've, I've got the specific elements in the table, but then it's color coded and keyed, so the colors are explained as categories. So I have liquids, gases, metals, non-metals, things like that, right? So you have both categories and individual elements within those categories. With Aristotle, would he look at the categories that that table is organized by as real? Or, or how would he talk about categories, classification, immaterial classifications? I, I would I would... I could be wrong on this, but I'm going to say he would not think that they are real, but they're an abstraction from what we've taken from the particular. So um, so even if you take from our, in our world, this might not be a perfect illustration, but for example, like you and I could both agree that there was a time that restaurants did not exist, nor do we need an ideal restaurant to exist. You know what I mean? And that's where it kind of becomes difficult. So like a car, do we want to really say there's a universal, eternal, like, so for, for Plato, these things had to be universal, whereas I'm comfortable saying, no, in some sense we've abstracted, we've abstracted from the particular Henry Ford vehicle, and now we understand cars all the time without there being this universal and so we are able to abstract so i would say that aristotle without these universals being real in some regard um we're abstracting so that so i'm 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 totally blank on nominalism i can't remember what the other alternative is and i'm confusing them in my head right now um but one of them would say the invisible realm is real uh the other one would just say it's not but an abstraction that we take from the particular is is it nominalism and realism is that what yeah nominalism and realism and i and nominalism explain them um realism i want to say realism is one is basically the product that the invisible realm are they're real so there is a real two somewhere there's some sort of existence to this two that is real, whereas the nominalists want to say it's not real. The, the, what we have is two phones here, but but we've abstracted from these to it. So the the realist, that's what it is. The realist wants to affirm uh, the existence of these things. The nominalist is not. Two plus two equals four is this true uh, abstraction, universal immaterial abstraction that 
makes sense of it gives meaning to the two phones yeah the two particular phones and so for the under the lordship of christ christian podcast <laughs> yeah and so and that, that's what and so and i think the more we think about it you realize how difficult it is bringing these things together like um because yeah there, there are certain things like numbers you're kind of like yeah they are eternal like there's a sense which they're eternal you know what i mean like um anyway you think a and non a the laws of logic are eternal um and so they're somehow in Yahweh in his, but what exactly they are, I don't, I don't have a great theology behind it. One thing you brought up uh, in the podcast with Aaron that I think connects well here. uh, So you have some people who are really scared of Platonism because they don't want. I think it's it's people who put a lot of thought and worry into uh, being trapped in a particular cultural context when reading the Bible. You know, whether it's first century Judaism or 21st century America or, you know, ancient Greek thought, Platonism. So they don't want Platonism to infect our interpretation of Scripture. They think that would be then a, a pagan uh, twisting of, of Scriptures. And, and obviously we want to read the Scripture on the Scriptures term terms. And Plato is a creature of Christ. He, he's not creating these ideas that Christ is then constrained by. But anything... and. So anything that Plato says is that, that he says is true is only true because he's capturing an idea, a sense of the truth that is established by Christ. So would it be fair to say that Christianity is a coherent philosophic system that Plato had a lot to say that, that, that fits well with? So it's not that Christianity is platonic, but that there are things in what Plato said that reflect the truth of Christianity. And I w- I'd want to say yes, and I, and, you know, I, what I'd want to say is, yeah, kind of like what you're getting. At. So Aristotle would have truth to him too. Even some postmodernists would have truth to him too uh, in the things that they're saying. So, so the postmodernist is right about radical contingency. Plato is right about the need for these universals. Um, to, to, in some way, we need these things to have a conversation. Like there are people who are listening to us that we've never met that I'm using words with, and they understand what we're saying because there are things that are universally true. And then the particulars that I'm using tie into that. And so he discovers things because, yeah, they're in God's world. And so, you know. If you know we walk into that building over there, um, you know, we're, we're able to function. Or you guys come into the state of Colorado or uh, Idaho, rather, you're able to function here because you're you know th- there's things that we just share inherent. And in, our, in the talk today, Doug would uh, talk about things that are inescapable. So there are certain things that are inescapable. That everybody participates in, and everybody is in because they are in God's world. And so what Plato's doing, he, he did a great job given the fact that he doesn't have revelation. You know what I mean? He wasn't working with revelation aside from general natural revelation. And I think he says a lot of things that are truthful, but because because he doesn't have God's revelation of himself to him, what he ended up doing and what other people end up doing is they end up absolutizing the wrong thing. So they end up absolutizing something in creation. Uh, so like, say, the forms. So he's going to absolutize that um, rather than who Yahweh is. So as Christians, we want to absolutize Yahweh. Then we kind of relativize creation in light of who he is. Whereas what atheistic man or secular man and unbelieving man is going to do is they're going to absolutize the wrong thing. So they absolutize the forms or they're just going to absolutize the particulars and they're going to have trouble cohering and bringing things together because they've absolutized things in the wrong place. And what we as Christians do is we say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one that holds all things together, the invisible realm, the visible realm. He's the one who coheres all things according to Colossians 1. And so that's where we're going to have the gap. And so in our evangelism, what we should feel comfortable doing, and I feel like oftentimes Christians are afraid to do this, is as you're talking to the unbeliever, like, you know, to go against the talk this morning a little bit, it's like, oh, like Van Til was saying, oh, we need to press the antithesis. There are times where we don't. What we need to do is to say, no, you, what you're saying is true. So, for example, when I'm on campus and when I used to hardcore... You bashing on Calvinism I'm not, again. Yeah, Vantillianism, not Calvinism, Vantillianism. I hate Calvinism. <laughs> it's Marxism. 
<laughs> so, so, um, so what I've discovered, generally speaking, so for example, when I press the antithesis on the ethical issue on campus, people would get into a tizzy and they'd lose their minds. And I was able to get big crowds because of it. But at the same time, I realized I wasn't communicating. Now, if I just say something as simple, same thing with the same Muslims. If I if I'm interacting with a Muslim, I take a shot at Muhammad, they lose their minds. If I just preface that with, I'm not saying this to be disrespectful. Muhammad is not a prophet. They can handle it. But if I just say Muhammad's not a prophet, they lose their minds. And so same thing with, like, say, ethics with the unbeliever. All I have to do is to say, look, I'm not saying you don't have ethical blah, blah, blah. And then get to the place of saying, but you have these things because you're an image of God. Rather than just starting off with, you don't have an ethical system, blah, blah, blah. By what standard? And they just kind of lose their minds and I haven't communicated with them. So the goal is I, I feel far more comfortable because they are in God's world just being like, oh, yeah, you have my father's money in your pocket so I can talk about that money in your pocket. You really have it. You really possess it. So it's kind of like I usually on campus, I usually say it's like welfare. Like you might not be able to explain that it's my taxes that are paying for it. You might not be able to explain that it's Yahweh's money in your pocket, but but let's talk about that money in your pocket. And I don't have to push the antithesis saying, you can't account for that money, you can't account for your money. I, I go, yeah, you do have that money in your pocket, now let's talk about that. And I found this to be generally more fruitful because they are in God's world, and, and, and these things are inescapable. And if I take Romans 1 seriously, they do know that Yahweh put it there, and they, they do have to deal with it. And my question is, if I have a guy on the side of a building debating about suicide, where do I want to start with him at? You know what I mean? Do I want to start with like, yeah, you have nothing to live for. You know what I mean? You're Pull a Mel Gibson card and just tell him to jump. <laughs> hey, can I track yeah. ba- uh, backtrack an yeah, inch and then? So you're talking about um, we, we absolutize. You know, Christ is the absolute, mm-hmm. and everything else has meaning in relation to Him. Invisible, visible, immaterial, material. Going back to something you said earlier, that's one way that we can take these abstractions and not have to think of them just because they have immaterial. Uh, existence, these quote-unquote forms have immaterial existence that are universal, doesn't mean that we have to affirm them as um, eternal, mm-hmm. right? God, the eternal, created the immaterial and the material, right? So two plus two equals four is just as much of a creation, and it's a defining piece of creation to the particulars of two phones and two phones making four. Is that a fair way to talk about it? it it's it's not eternal because it's created. It's part of the created order, but it's an immaterial abstraction of truth. Yeah, and, that, and that's one of the difficult things. Like, like, like you, you were talking about with Aaron about something being in the mind of God necessarily as part of God, and then something being conceived of him in his mind as a part of creation. So... To, Forgive whatever language part, mistakes. Yeah, part, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of the difficult thing is is uh, yeah is is what are the things that are inherent to God and His character and His nature? Uh, so, for example, the triune God, in, in some way, with the nature of God being triune, we have numbers already in Him. You know what I mean? One and three and all that sort of stuff. So, so there are and that, that kind of gets where it gets a little bit difficult. It's kind of a little bit jumps out of my league. And the Bible is not a straight up philosophy book at points. And so, uh, there, I don't accept. I don't know from guests I have on this podcast. <laughs> so you might get away with that on campus, but I need yeah, an answer. Yeah, yeah. So, so I would say. But, and so, but that's the thing. I think part of the beauty of it is it's one of those things like even this weekend they're talking about the purposeless of our uh, education. Um, but, you know, the edu- but like these are the things like by the glory of God we get to meditate on them and think about them. And, uh, but yeah, so, so there are definitely things that are – yeah, that – yeah, I don't know the best way to articulate it. But there is um, – they're there via creation, be it visible and invisible. Colossians 1 lays that out plainly. Um, and also a Galatians, or a Genesis 1, the heavens and the earth, the invisible realm and the visible realm. And, uh, and they're there, and, and so God's the one who coheres those two things. And, um, and so we as Christians should feel comfortable, yeah, like realizing, yeah, because 
Yahweh is the creator, you and I can't exhaust it. I think that's even one of my problems with apologetics, myself uh, included, is I, I want to have exhaustive knowledge. I was actually reading Van Til, he says that's a satanic desire. Um, and so, and part you of- You Marx just quoting Van Til. <laughs> and so, part, and, I, and like, it, it's kind of freeing to realize I don't have to be omniscient. Yahweh is the one who's omniscient. He's the one who holds all things. And I get glimpses and I can kind of think through things and bring some things together. But at the end of the day, I'm not the creator. You know what I mean? At the best, I can think God's thoughts after him. And, and so there are pl- certain places where you know Deuteronomy 29 29 the things are that are revealed are for us and our children the secret things belong to the Lord now that, that's not you know it's a little bit of a different category but there are plenty of things I simply don't know and know how to bring together but I can step back and see yes somehow I need both particulars and I need a universal and I don't always know how to bring all those things together and how they relate but I can understand in simplistic terms that yeah there has to like for me to have the be able to do two plus two whether I'm here in China or on the moon, and for it to work, there's this has to be this universal, and there has to be this plus, and there has to be this equals. You know what I mean? These these things that like I can't empirically observe yeah, with, with immaterial transcendent meaning, mm-hmm. objectively. Yeah. So we're under uh, we're under three minutes to so keep that in mind okay. with the question I'm gonna okay. ask. But from what I was hearing, backtracking to what you're talking about with presuppositionalism, from what I was hearing from you, it's not a not a rejection of presuppositionalism, but a rejection of a like a concreteness in how. Uh, we carry forward our presuppositions and being willing to kind of extrapolate a little bit and and see uh, graciously but truthfully, you know what somebody what somebody's operating off of. Like you said, you know the money, the money, the ethical money in their pocket. Uh, is that am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So uh, even and even Van, like one of the things that's kind of funny, Van Til himself says uh, that the argument for Christianity may not ever be sufficiently stated. You know what I mean? Um, so so Van Til himself, who's kind of the founder of the school of thought, says the argument may not be sufficiently stated. Um, I, I wish I remember the verbatim. Uh, but then, but it's kind of funny because then you know every presupposition I know states it as if it's just sufficiently. They state right. it sufficiently every time. And so uh, so my problem with it is is twofold is uh well yeah so so it'd be longer than than three minutes so i'll, I'll just say <laughs> we can come back after break. Y- yeah we can come back after break okay so, so I'll, I'll say that yeah so so i'll, I'll hunt actually Mass RS is our sponsor d- d- during break during break Mass i'll get my van till quote and then we'll come back and discuss it so yeah with that we're going to go to break uh sponsored today very lucratively generously by mask rs see you in a sec and we're back. Thank you so much, MassRS, for all of your money. We are here today in Moscow, Idaho, Stone Mountain Media. This is Dave with Sugar Sean, and we're here today joined by our friend Keith Darrell, the Campus Preacher, Campus Preacher Podcast with the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and the Whitfield Fellowship. He is sidelined as all college campuses are shut down for uh, the eternal future. And uh, we've been talking about evangelism and uh, philosophy right now. We are engaging with him on his view of Van Til and presuppositionalism and why he thinks Calvinists are Marxists. (laughs) And then we're going to hit a couple more philosophical ideas before all of of our batteries die. So with that, here you go, Keith. Yeah, I'm trying to find this uh, Van Til quote where – because I think it's it's one of those things that like – it gives us a proper humility. So I I think in my head sometimes – I guess maybe one of my gripes, and here's the challenge we have: is as Christians, we want to be abs- we, we always want to place the absolute in the right place, and the challenge is uh, sometimes we place it, and we do want to place it in the Word of God, but we sometimes place it in this in the way we state, say, the presuppositional argument. If you realize it's, you know, it's a byproduct of kind of like Hegelian philosophy and idealism, and you realize Van Til's coming from that school of thought, and so it's kind of a late comer to the philosophical scene, just act like, oh yeah, it's clearly the way that Paul argued and the way the Bible was. I feel like, you know, we, we, we buy into things that we absolutize kind of even much of what I want to say here is we sometimes absolutize the wrong thing, including our argument uh, for God's existence. And uh, unfortunately, I can't find this quote, but, but yeah, going back to Van Til, just the idea that he himself would want to hedge on the 
uh, sufficiency of stating the argument. And he even says it may never be stated sufficiently. But then he goes, nonetheless, it's still valid. And you're just like, really? Like, how do you know it's, how do you know it's completely valid? So, and, and the nutshell version of what he wants to argue is that unless Christianity is true, nothing can be known. Things are known, therefore Christianity is true. That's kind of a nutshell. And what he wants to say is that the transcendent God is the necessary preconditions. And so, um, and I, I think there's truth to it. So I don't, I don't reject it outright. I'm just not sure if you're able to get there as well as he wants to state it. Did you listen to, I'm sure you have the Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein great debate, and if so, what did you think of it? Because I love it. Yeah, so I love it from the from the sense that if you listen to it again, I think I would agree that Bonson destroys Stein, and he deconstructed his position. I don't think Bonson put anything in there that would have convinced me that Christianity was the necessary preconditions to knowledge. He convinced me that Stein's position is insufficient and incoherent, but he didn't state anything. And that's even part of what Van Til would say. Well, it's an indirect argument. Um, and because it's an indirect argument, there is no immediate argument for the position. It's more, see, every, every other position fails. My position doesn't fail. Therefore, it's true. The, the impossibility of the contrary. Yeah, the impossibility of the contrary. And so what you have to do is show that all other worldviews are impossible. And can, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I've not seen the argument that that is sufficiently stated, that no other worldview can... Just give you enough time, and I'm sure you <laughs> could do it, man. Yeah, so, so that, that's the sort of stuff that I had. So I, I think Bonson destroyed him. He outclassed him. But if you read it carefully, he never actually made an argument for his position. So he deconstructed Stein, but just because I beat, uh, you know, if I said, if I beat some little kid over here, and, I, and therefore I conclude, like, anybody who comes along I can beat, I haven't demonstrated that. I demonstrated I beat this guy, and so, but that doesn't pr- prove that I'm the strongest man in the world. So anyway, that's that's where I thought Bonson fell fell off, is he did not positively state his case. So, sometimes sometimes I, I've heard it as, like, a tenant, almost, of presuppositional argument to not make a, a positive argument some guys take that position yeah and uh and you have a guy like clark maybe gordon clark would be a little bit more along those lines and they would just say that's why it's a presupposition because it's almost like you can't prove it and, and that's that's even where you'd have a debate say between gordon clark and van till clark would be much more as like almost as if like yeah it's just a presupposition there is no it's almost like fideism more so than an argument um and so yeah and that kind of and there are some guys who are along those lines and, and you know is that is that in fact the case? Um, whereas when I read Acts, I feel like they do make arguments and offer proofs and demonstrations for their position. And um, so, anyway, yeah. So that, that's where that's where it gets, starts to get a little hairy for me. Is and so at the end of the day, what I am is I'm, I'm a little bit of a pragmatist when it comes. To, who am I talking to? So sometimes I'll use the historical argument for Christ's resurrection. And to be honest, when I'm on campus, that's probably the most effective. Like, I was just pushing back that Jesus rose from the dead, and that way again I get to preach. I'm not preaching abstract philosophy because the average student has not thought through the necessary preconditions to knowledge. You know what I mean? And I even say most presuppositionalists haven't. They just heard this argument. They think it's they think it's gold, so they repeat it. Well, have you really thought through the necessary preconditions? Like, what are all the necessary preconditions to knowledge? I don't know what they are. Um, yeah. So revelation. <laughs> yeah, revel- and so yeah, so uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, even like, and, and I'm not a. This isn't even necessarily like an argument I'm putting forth, but just the idea of like where, where you're basing the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, most of that's just Bible. Mm-hmm. So that's. I, I, I consider that a presuppositional argument in a lot of ways. Yeah, and where the historical argument would differ is they, they would want to say, like, even with Joe Unbeliever. So, for example, whether we have Revelation or not, everybody, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll state it universally, everybody believes that 9-11 happened. Now, why 9-11 happened is why a bunch of people disagree. So everybody agrees that there was a man, you know, you're going to have a few outliers that believe that Jesus existed in the first century and that something happened. Your average, we'll just say your historians, sure. uh, agree that there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who existed, um, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and then you had a group of men who claimed they saw him rise from the dead. So what's the best explanation for that? Now, obviously, we're using the scriptures, but we're using the scriptures in the same way that we'd be using, say, that, that truthers would be using videotape of 
uh, say building seven falling or whatever and uh-huh. stuff like that. So, so, so that's kind of where like the historical argument. So my point in mentioning that is because in a sense, everybody's a realist. So even though you have uh-huh. postmodernists running around saying this, that, and the other, and we are getting more and more like hell bent and crazy with our ideas. Um, the reality of it is, is we have, um, we're still living a real world. People know you exist. They know I exist. And, and, and as Christians, we should feel comfortable pressing that down upon them of just like, no, you live in the real world and you do know history and you do know two plus two equals four, even if you follow Twitter where they're not saying that. And you just keep pressing it down upon them. And you realize at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're wicked and they are seeking to escape it. Like when you read the, if you read any of the two plus two arguments online, like they basically want to get away from male and female. You know what I mean? Their whole two plus two argument is predicated on because if we agree to this, then we have to agree that there's male and female. You know what I mean? And, right. and these sorts of things. And so their, their whole point is to escape reality. And what we want to do is keep pressing it down upon them right. and, uh, and make them live with it. And within that, we want to do it graciously and lovingly because like the more and more I interact with people, like, I mean, sin screws people up and it screws up mom and dad and it screws up the relationship with mom and dad. And like, even when a couple years ago, it hit me when I was on campus, I was actually preaching over here at Washington state and they're all clamoring for a free, free, uh, safe space. I remember sizing these kids up and being like, yeah, if I had your childhood, I'd probably want a safe space too. You know what I mean? So like, so like I, I had some sympathy for them. Like I understand like their philosophy is wrong to get there, but they've been abused the first, you know, 17 years of their life. And now they don't want that to happen to anybody. So I kind of like emotionally give them that. You know what I mean? Um, but at the same time, philosophically, what we want to do, we're dealing with a guy who's about to jump off the cliff. You're mentally ill. You know what I mean? You're off, you're off the hinges. So I want to spare your life. And so how do I communicate the guy who's at the edge of the cliff and within that some of them are just wicked where you know there there is a difference of dealing with a biden and sort of guy and and people who are like openly and blatantly wicked but that's one of the waters that we have to navigate so anyway that's a little tangential to the nature of presuppositionalism but i i i I, I think it's helpful i think i think it uh it presses the idea that like one thing i like that i think it's uh i think frame talks about it but he talks about you know like drawing bigger circles Mm -hmm. and just the idea that it's it's uh it's not wrong to engage in positive argumentation uh but you're not like seating the judgment seat is kind of the the bigger issue I think sometimes and uh, and so when you're able to use those arguments uh, and kind of walk people along and that's just going to walk them along while not seating the judgment seat while not seating the reality that uh, these things are absolute uh, I think that's I think it's totally appropriate and can be a really effective way to yeah. Things. And, and to all the listeners, uh, I realize he's controversial on a couple points, but for the most part, go read uh, Frame. Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I, I think Frame's the best expression of presuppositionalism out there. Yeah. And and what yeah. I, and oftentimes what I'm responding to is is particular strands that are men who have not studied philosophy, they're not thought deeply of these things. And you want you do want the guy on the street to be able to feel comfortable. You know what I mean? You don't you don't want everybody not everybody's gonna be able to be an academic and blah blah. blah. But what right. you have is like so the Bonson sign debate, you have people listen to that and it's just a regurgitation of that over and over and over and over. And it's like you gave somebody a hammer and everything's everything's a nail. And there's just no right. wisdom like the woman at the well to the Pharisees to the the woman you know washing his feet. We we need wisdom on right. how to go about it. And I think it's kind of an opposition to what we were talking about earlier, the idea of being willing to fail mm-hmm. is it's kind of people see it as like this safeguard to even being willing to fail in the apologetics philosophy realm mm-hmm. right so it's like i'm gonna have other questions biblically i might have trouble answering but i'm not gonna have any philosophical issues because i'm just gonna drop this hammer uh and it's an, an unwillingness to to be willing to learn in that category as well mm-hmm. yeah i think that's absolutely right and there's actually another really great chapter in a book uh, covenantal apologetics by oliphant i believe is who wrote it uh, but he, i think chapter three on persuasion that's another thing that's totally worth reading just because like it's a presupposition she wants to go about persuading people not just like yeah like you know there's appropriate place for the old, you know, God's words like a lion, you let it out of a cage, it's a hammer that shatters a rock. Um, but I've realized more and more as I interact with people who know nothing of the Bible, um, I, I kind of think the presupposition on that point has stifled and hurt more discussion and conversation than it's actually borne fruit in it, um, is what I would want to put forward. So so if, if I were to say I'm a presuppositionalist, my methodology is 
gospel. I know you obviously just said that you like to keep the the Bible on a leash, not in a cage, but on a leash. No. <laughs> totally. You just want to fairly represent. You know, I want to fairly represent you there. But so, gospel. Then there's there's pushback, right? You let your opponent push back as much as he wants. You engage there. You show the baselessness of it. Gospel. What do you think of that methodology? That's that's basically my my. Equation. Yeah, and I would say, uh, and that's, I would say it's pretty similar, like what I'm doing. Uh, you're, yeah, you're, you're seeking to what's their, what's their position, where, where's its problems, where's its holes, um, and but oftentimes it is also attempting to be descriptive. Uh, yeah, because oftentimes like there are things where like, uh, and even Doug mentioned it in his talk where there are mischaracterizations of say the doctrine of hell, and um, and I think of uh, probably one of the things I often bring up as I was preaching up in uh, uh, Salem, Massachusetts at this uh, Halloween parade, and there was this fundamentalist out there preaching who. Like, honestly, it made Yahweh just sound like he was in a group. Like, and, and here's the thing that was interesting. As I was listening to this guy preach, I was like, this is like, your father's an abuser. You know what I mean? Like, like he was the way he was talking about Yahweh's wrath and everything else, it just sounded like a dad who'd come in. And then I was talking to one of his friends, like, oh, this guy's testimony is amazing. He was in an orphanage, he was beaten. You're like, yeah. His and his whole view of God, <laughs> and his whole view of yeah. God the Father is the guy who'd come in and beat him with a wrench and everything else. And then Jesus kind of stepped in. And that's not who God is. And right. so when that's so so even in our apologetic, and that's even, I guess, even one of the things we want to push back with the nature of how we're going about evangelizing is is like, how do we talk to a guy whose whole life has been like we talk about like father hunger and all that sort of yeah. jazz? But their father impression has been an abuser, and so they extrapolate the God the Father must be like that. And then our gospel is Jesus, Father wants to strike you dead, Jesus steps in. So you still have this angry God flying off the handle, right. um, and then Jesus steps in and kind of assuages his wrath a little bit. So right. how do we, you know, we have these mischaracterizations. And that same trip, I was getting on a highway in um, Arkansas, and there's a giant sign that just said, and it, it was a Bible verse, which says, I'll never be angry with you again, God. And like, it, doesn't that sound like an empty promise of a father just came and beat his kid? I'll never right. be angry with you again if you just clean your room. You know what I mean? And so like, so like those sorts of things, like it's quoting the Bible, so don't, don't put it in a cage, but there's no context to it where I, you know, the person sitting there reading it could go in a myriad of different directions. And that's the sort of stuff that I've done more evangelism and interact with people. I'm realizing more and more yeah. that as I'm interacting with people who have no context for the Bible, who literally know, they don't even know John 3:16 anymore. I'm trying to explain who God is. So this unknown God, I'm here to make him known to you. As Paul says in uh, Acts 17, that's what we're seeking to do more and more. We're not, we're not prophets to Israel who have ideas of who God is. We're, we're going to Gentiles and the Goyim who, who know nothing of who Yahweh is. And we're trying to make his character known. And so I think, you know, someone like John Frame, I mean, yeah. So if you're just taking John Frame's theology in many ways with some tweaks here or there, because he does such a great job of just like laying out the gospel and being reasonable and explaining it through. And I, and I think that's kind of the best of presuppositionalism is what you find there. And if you're having trouble getting to sleep, there's nothing better than opening up a frame book and you will get a power nap guaranteed every chapter. <laughs> or a lecture. Yeah. Or a, or a John frame lecture. You'll be out in minutes. Yeah. We're, we're running out of time and and juice on this. Did you want to engage any more on presuppositionalism? Wrap up. No, okay. So before we wrap up, I'll hand it to you for the wrap up. Okay. Why should the average Christian on the street know the term monism? Why should he care? What does it mean? What should he do with that knowledge? Yes. So go home, listen to John Lennon's Imagine, and the average person you're listening to, even if they don't sign off on every jot and tittle of it, uh, uh, accepts that the, the world is one, as John Lennon kind of ends that. We'll all be as one, as John Lennon says. So monism is the idea that the, the world is really one. And the main philosophy that we're up against is is monistic, the assumption that all is one. That's why we have what's called egalitarianism, that everything has to be equal. Whites and blacks have to be equal, male female has to be equal, trans, gay, straight, whatever. It all has to be equal and one, because what's driving it is that this idea that we have to have oneness. And 
And once everything becomes one and we get rid of all power dynamics and power structures, they kind of think we'll have this harmony and peace. And so it is an ethical system. So it's a metaphysical system. It's an ethical system. And it's also a, a knowledge system, how we know the world. So, so it's an it's a uh, it's contrary to Christianity. Christianity is is uh, the creator creature. So we're, we have a dualism. So are, are they arguing that it is all one or that it ought to be all one? Because if it is all one, then why would there be any need to change differentiation? Yeah. So, so it's kind of that'd be kind of their problem. Their problem kind of in a sense their problem of sin is our rejection of the one and so it's it's not philosophically incoherent at the end of the day i don't think it is monism's not because you can't escape logic a and non a like um you just just can't escape the nature of logic um and so monism rape and non-rape yeah it's not one you know what i mean um but and so they think that's kind of the problem is that like you and i coming along and making these distinctions that we have um and they kind of think we can transcend it you can't um but if we are trying to be gracious to them we can say you can see because you can see where they're trying to get them like they're you know if, if you just take like a really rich guy you take a really poor guy it's oh if we just each give them we split that money get them equal then we'll have peace between those two we won't have that power dynamic where we can impress them anymore so so in one sense we want to say what you're saying is decent uh we can understand but the but what we need is a scriptural ethical system that views people as the image of god therefore you don't exploit them blah blah but this idea that we can really be one is ultimately foolish but the, i would say that's a dominant philosophy that we're interacting with and that's why you even have the rise of socialism in the united states is is this and even black lives matter because it's predicated on us kind of all coming one and if we just and uh, but where they're confused though is you'll realize in one breath they're talking about equality and the next breath they're talking about diversity you can't have equal things in diversity so diversity is not monistic even though they, they'll offer up a monistic philosophy but in the next breath they're, they're arguing for diversity so, so where does the push for multiculturalism pluralism diversity fit with the overall strength of the monistic push uh, I would just say I would argue that it's, it's originally a strategy to deconstruct the West, and so if you have kind of a, a, a Western hegemonic is the word they'll use hegemony, uh, kind of dominating a Christian hegemony, and then you can kind of sneak in the idea, of, oh, what you guys really need to do is diversity, you need to accept differences, and what that really does is break down the power structures that is negating. So, so um, yeah, so ultimately their claim to diversity for sexual diversity ends up excluding our sexual ethic as Christians. No, you guys are prudes, you guys are this, and so your uh, opposition to homosexuality needs to be pushed out. So so they, as much as we do, push sexual ethics out to the margins. The question is, where do we draw the line? But I would say originally the multiculturalism and the diversity thing is actually a means of deconstructing certain power structures in their head more than it is a genuine goal and desire. There, there is no inherent... There is no inherent value to diversity as an end in and of itself, but it is a powerful strategic tool. So if I go to Saudi Arabia and I start appealing to tolerance and I start appealing to diversity, I'm, what I'm seeking to do is deconstruct and break down right. their, their social order. And once I break it down, I can replace it with something else. So right. I think it's much more that strategy. Uh, go no. ahead. Uh, so diversity is the game. Monism is the goal. Um, yes. And diversity is a game to break up. Uh, a creation as a, a Christian culture that makes distinctions along the lines that we do and what they want to do is deconstruct that and reset the lines and reset the parameters of the discussion so I, I think it's much more of a tool and that's why even even like other things where uh, you know it, and all you got to do is go read their literature and they'll, they'll tell you that um, uh, so, so even, even like the way they go about voting sometimes where and that's even why like you know they, they, they're like oh, all women need to vote for Hillary Clinton because what matters in this moment is is the oneness of women more so than any particulars what matters is is deconstructing the patriarchy and so we have to, and so whatever we have to do, even if it's a temporary loss by getting Hillary in there, if we all unite as one as a temporary thing to help break down the, the patriarchy, it's worth it for the long-term game. And so th- they tell you what they're doing. Um, they're smart. They're clever. They're great strategists. And that's why they've been successful over the last 60 years. And we've been losing ground over the last 60 years because they've been doing the game better than we do. And they've articulated it. They've articulated things like love and justice, equality, and they... 
all those words they own and we don't. And we can gnash our teeth on street corners all we want, but you have to applaud them to some extent and say, you guys, scoreboard, they can just say scoreboard, you know what I mean? We can bemoan their intolerance all day long. We're like, scoreboard, you know what I mean? So they're winning. Um, so we can be upset and say, you can't account for it all they want, but we have to have the reality that they're winning. So, Well, and your presence on the campus every time you're there is a win for the patriarchy. You are the patriarchy. <laughs> uh-huh. And a white one at that. So it's the white patriarchy. And real quick, uh, we're really draining our battery, but... Uh, what would you say quick solution for the Christian who's seeing that, sees that as a problem, and wants to do something about it to be faithful? Uh, I would say the basics. Read your Bible, go to church, participate in the Lord's Supper, listen to preaching of the Word, and then from there, seek to love your neighbor. Like, it's really, it's really that simple. Um, but be bold and do it. Don't just, like think about it don't overthink it but learn to love your neighbor invite them in uh praying about it oh yeah yeah don't just pray about it pray about it then invite them in Uh, the homosexual the abortionist these people invite them all in and show like show that we love our enemies yahweh loved us when he was our enemy we love them when they're our enemies and we invite them in we feed them we clothe them and next thing you know we'll we'll win the day and we'll have the narrative because their their culture's going to destroy itself right so and that's and that's uh that's not this big grandiose one-time event that's the just the day in day out grind Mm -hmm. of being a christian uh seeking to be faithful to god uh so with that keith we thank you very much for your time thanks uh this time was a blessing. Your ministry in general has been a blessing to us. We pray that God continues to bless it, that you can get back into campuses soon, and that God blesses your work of discipleship here in uh, Moscow while you're here. Uh, With that, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Stone Mountain Media. Until next time, go with God.